Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what exactly is a pixel? Pixar co-founder Alvy Ray Smith discusses its math and history in his new book. Plus, farmers markets, once a cornerstone of in-person weekend outings, have gone digital. And Liquid Death Mountain Water is selling skateboards infused with Tony Hawk's blood. For real. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. What exactly is a pixel? Could you describe what it is and how it works? And despite what many of us assume, it's not the actual block of color that we see on our screens, but rather the data points used to create the picture that we see. Sort of. It's pretty complicated. That's one of the more prominent takeaways from a new book published at the start of the month called A Biography of the Pixel, written by Alvy Ray Smith, the co-founder of Pixar. He spent the past decade researching and writing this book, and it shows. It's a wide-reaching yet accessible read, and even just in the title, A Biography of the Pixel, biography rather than history, you can tell this is going to be a heady book about the magic of the pixel, about the humanity that all the ones and zeros behind it is able to endow. As Smith describes pixels at one point, quote, "...far from being squares or dots that sort of approximate a smooth visual scene, pixels are the profound and exact concept at the heart of all the images that surround us, the elementary particles of modern pictures." End quote. But first, who is Alvy Ray Smith? Quoting Harry McCracken's review of the book in Fast Company, As an electrical engineering student at New Mexico State University, Alvy Ray Smith generated his first digital image in 1965. In the 1970s, he worked with Richard Shoup on an important program called Super Paint at Xerox Park. Then he moved on to the graphics lab at the New York Institute of Technology, where he and colleague Ed Catmull helped the school's idiosyncratic founder, Alexander Schur, pursue his vision of utilizing computers in the production of film animation. It was at NYIT that Smith and Catmull came up with the concept of the Alpha Channel, which made parts of digital images transparent so that they could be composited on top of each other into a single picture. That breakthrough, which eventually won Smith one of his two Oscars, became so fundamental to modern imagery of all sorts that it's startling to realize that someone had to invent it." End quote. Shortly thereafter, Smith and Catmull got funding from George Lucas and tinkered around at Lucasfilm for a while, eventually creating fully computer-generated sequences in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and Return of the Jedi. The work they were doing there became its own digital division, which went independent and found funding from Steve Jobs. With Smith and Catmull at the helm, this hardware and software company became Pixar. Smith didn't actually stick around too long at Pixar. He, to put it lightly, had trouble working with Jobs. But he was there to do the revolutionary work at the beginning, make several shorts, including one that won an Oscar, and see the deal made with Disney to produce Toy Story. Some of that revolutionary work he was a part of included the Pixar Image Computer, a custom-built supercomputer just for pixels, and the Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS, that they built for Disney to help streamline cell animation. Disney used CAPS running on a Pixar Image Computer for 18 cell-animated feature films from 1990 onwards. But the real magic happened with their development of software called RenderMan. Quoting from a biography of the Pixel, 
Render Man freed a picture maker from having to know the specifics of any one company's rendering hardware. When you buy Render Man, you get its shading language, a compiler for that language, and a complete rendering system for any hardware that supports the language. A movie maker, say, has only to know Render Man's shading language, and the Render Man system takes care of the rest, the generation of the pixels behind the scenes. Creating a good standard is hard. It must be very well designed in order to work universally and to hold up over time. Renderman, published in 1990, has become a Hollywood staple for visual effects and animation. End quote. But what about those pixels? What does happen behind the scenes? Quoting an adapted excerpt from a biography of the pixel published in Eon, You carry pixels around in your cell phone, say, stored in picture files. You cannot see the pixels. To see them, you ask for a picture file to be displayed. Typically, you click on it. Because of the astounding speed of today's computers, this seems to happen instantaneously. The digital pixels are sent to the display device, which spreads them with the little glowing spots on the display's screen. Many people call these spots pixels, a very common error. Pixels are digital, separated, spiky things and are invisible. The little glowing spots are analog, overlapped, smooth things and are visible. I suggest we call each a display element to distinguish it from a picture element, which is what the word pixel abbreviates. Display elements and pixels are fundamentally different kinds of things. Display elements vary from manufacturer to manufacturer, from display to display, and over time as display technologies evolve. But pixels are universal, the same everywhere, even on Mars and across the decades. End quote. Now, the math behind pixels is pretty complicated, and even in Smith's allegedly stripped-down way of explaining it, I could barely make sense of it. And a lot of the explanations rely on looking at visuals. It's a lot of stuff about waves and Joseph Fourier and the sampling theorem and signals. But what I did take away is that pixels are invisible because they only exist at a point, that they're zero-dimensional, and that the crucial elements of this discovery were made by a man named Vladimir Kudelnikov. And Smith is very grateful to him because, as he says, quote, It's not at all obvious that this scheme should work, but the mathematics of the sampling theorem proves it so, and it demonstrates once again the remarkable power of mathematics to take us to unintuitive and extremely useful places, end quote. And it seems the unintuitiveness of pixels has stuck. In Fast Company, Harry McCracken admitted to Smith that he himself didn't really get what a pixel was until he read the book, and Smith replied, Nobody does, Harry. That's why I wrote the book. And when McCracken asked if others in the computer graphics field who were there with Smith in the beginning would define pixels the same way, Smith replied, quote, No, I think they'll stumble all over the place because it's never been elucidated clearly. What I'm offering here is a set of definitions that fit known quantities very well and should stick. I'm thinking of it as a canon for digital light. These are the definitions. This is how it works. Let's get it right starting now and quit fumbling around. End quote. Well, I am still going to fumble around with the math behind it for a while, but we can clear up one last thing today. Pixels are not square. Quoting again from the adapted essay in Eon, A pixel, an invisible, zero-dimensional point, cannot be a square, and the little glowing spot of light from the display device generally isn't either. It can be, but only if the spreader is a hard-edged box, an unnatural shape. So why do so many people think that pixels are little squares? The answer is simple. 
Apps and displays have fooled us for decades with a cheap and dirty trick. To zoom in by a factor of 20, say, they replace each pixel with a 20 by 20 square array of copies of that pixel and display the results. It's a picture of 400 spread pixels of the same color arranged in a square. It looks like a little square. What a surprise. It's definitely not a picture of the original pixel made 20 times larger. There's another reason for the myth of the little square. Pixelation is a trivializing misrepresentation, but it's consistent with a general tendency throughout the early history of digital light. The assumption was that computer-generated pictures must be rigid, linear, mechanical, and ungraceful because, well, computers are rigid, linear, and so forth. We know now this is completely false. The computer is the most malleable tool ever built by humankind. It imposes no such constraints. Convincing avatars of human beings and emotional close-up are beginning to abound on computers. But it took decades to erase this faulty prejudice. Some remnants still survive, such as the notion of square pixels." End quote. And I'll leave you with this soundbite from Smith speaking at a 1990 meeting of the Boston Computer Society. He was showing off some images that he and the team had created and paused to explain about some plants that he had singled out from a previous landscape still. By the way, those aren't really plants. Those are Lindenmeyer systems, which are kind of the uh, general, it's a generalization of cellular automata to branching structures. In other words, it's just a set of eight rules operating on binary strings. It's just a mathematical thing. You make it look like a plant with your head. <laughs> you make it look like a plant with your head. I love that. Among the industries hit hard by the pandemic have been farms, especially the smaller to medium independent farms who rely on things like wholesale deals with restaurants, CSAs, and farmers markets. With supply chain issues, the closure of restaurants, labor shortages, and the temporary shuttering of farmers markets, which led to permanent closure for some and customers too hesitant to return to others, those independent farms have had an incredibly challenging year and a half. And some of them didn't make it. Those who did, though, are predominantly the ones that pivoted from in-person sales to e-commerce sites and apps. The Verge recently dived into the world of online farmers markets in the latest installment of their Making It Work 2021 series. You don't tend to think about buying products from farms online. I mean, part of the appeal is getting to go outside, whether to a farmer's market in a park or the farm itself. And as Simon Huntley, the founder of a site called Harvey, which facilitates direct sale and delivery for farms, told The Verge, quote, In a lot of ways, this is a horrible business. You've got perishable products, you've got high cost of goods sold, high labor costs, high capital costs, high delivery costs, low profit margin. If you get it exactly right, it's great. But you have to get it exactly right. End quote. And historically, a lot of online farmers market style companies have not gotten it right. But with more demand from farmers and consumers alike, a lot of them are listening and improving their platforms. Sites like Barn to Door, Graze Cart, Grown By, and Farm Drop have existed for several years, but their numbers have exploded over the last 18 months. In March of 2020, Barn to Door reported a 457% increase in revenue from orders, according to The Verge. Huntley's site Harvey saw a 500% increase in farmers' sales last year. And the farms themselves are booming as well. One couple The Verge spoke to, Nicholas Donk and Jenny Girard of Crystal Organic Farm in Georgia, have quadrupled their business, and they are not alone. 
But with the pandemic, it's pretty obvious all the reasons why these sites would be doing well. But they might also be filling an interesting gap that was growing even before the pandemic. Despite the fact that interest in locally sourced food has increased in recent years, attendance and sales at farmers markets have gone down between 20 and 70 percent year over year the past several years, according to The Verge. A 2018 report from the Northeast Sustainable Agricultural Research and Education Program attributes that downward trend to, among other reasons, quote, too many options for purchasing local food that offer more convenience, end quote. So these online farmers markets can at least help with that by making buying from the farmers themselves more convenient, even if they are directly cutting into attendance at the physical markets. Because, you know, while I like the idea of a weekly trip to my neighborhood's farmer's market to buy some of my groceries, in practice, it just often doesn't happen. I get busy, I make other plans, I just don't feel like making the effort. Now that I know about these online options, I legitimately might become a regular customer at some local farms. And for some of these, you still go to the physical farm or another pickup location point to get your order. Though when app What's Good piloted a delivery service in 2018, they saw sales explode. They told The Verge that meat producers made four to five times as much as they made at the farmer's markets in just the first day of offering delivery on What's Good. There are still some pain points for farmers, though. Learning to navigate the new technology, having interfaces and customer bases that encourage a consistency in goods not always found on farms, dealing with permits and food handling restrictions that weren't relevant previously. But for many of them, it's better than the early mornings and long hours at farmers markets in all weather, and they like that they're getting to know their regular customers better. And personally, I would love to see these models thrive because I do think they'll help make locally sourced food more accessible and convenient for tons of people, increasing the number of people buying from local farms and supporting farmers. But I also don't want us to lose in-person farmers markets and the importance of those as centers of community and for other types of access. So maybe we need to infuse some of this same innovation into farmers markets, not by making them digital, just by taking a step back and considering options that might have seemed unfavorable before. You know, how can the old and new work in tandem to push through adversity to a brighter future, like the farms are doing with online stores? I don't have anything close to an answer, but I'm hopeful for what could be to come. So you may have heard of Liquid Death Mountain Water. They're that canned water company with really metal branding that uses the tagline, Murder Your Thirst. They regularly put out absolutely ridiculous commercials and merchandise, like a crown of koozies that you wear to keep your head cool and therefore safe from zombies, or a legitimately well-made and fancy-looking wine cooler-style mini-fridge for all your cans of Liquid Death. They also have two vinyl albums in which they got metal and punk musicians to write songs using all of their hate comments as lyrics. They are legitimately serious about reducing plastic waste in the world and about making people laugh and keeping them hydrated. And whether or not it was one of their intentions, their tall boy cans of water have become really popular with people who don't drink, because it kind of looks like you're drinking a craft IPA even though it's just still or sparkling mountain water from the Alps. Anyways, their latest stunt, announced just today, is a limited edition run of skateboards whose decks are painted with the Liquid Death's Canhead mascot, and oh yeah, the paint is infused with Tony Hawk's blood. 
Seriously, they posted a video of Tony Hawk getting his blood drawn and the blood being mixed into the red paint put on the decks. And in the video, Hawk talks about how he agreed to be an ambassador for Liquid Death and he doesn't really get it, but it's totally legitimately his blood. He also adds that some of the proceeds will be going to reducing plastic pollution in oceans and building skate parks in underserved communities. So, you know, it's for a good cause. Really freaking weird, but for a good cause. Alright, well that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.